Good evening and welcome. I'm going to spend most of the next three quarters of an hour um, discovering why Simon Callow is here, but just a word or two <laughs> about why I am. Um, in 1979, I received a telephone call from Trevor Nunn, the artistic director of the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, inquiring whether I might be free to adapt a long 19th century novel. And the extent of my scholarship can be judged from the fact that my first question, having put down the telephone, uh, was, is Nicholas Nickleby the one with Mrs. Gamp in it? <laughs> Which it isn't. And I, I never got round to reading Martin Chuzzlewit. <laughs> but happily, I know a man who has. Um, and so I, it's my somewhat tenuous relationship with, 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 with Dickens, uh, which, which has led me, I think, to be here talking very pleasurably to Simon Callow about his terrific book, uh, which is a, uh, a very considerable biography of Charles Dickens of itself. But it contains, I think, a unique selling proposition, uh, something which I think Simon very refreshingly outlines on page two, uh, which is uh, his, particular, his particular reason for, for being appropriate to write this book. Uh, and he starts with an anecdote uh, of when uh, the great uh, Warren Mitchell, the great actor, uh, was being berated by Pam Jems, the great and sadly late playwright, about some changes that he had made to the text as delivered by Miss Jems. And uh, he, he, he responded by saying, Pam, Pam, uh, you just wrote him. I've been him. And Simon has been Dickens in a variety of aspects. He's been in a play um, uh, about Dickens, of which Dickens is the, 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 the leading character uh, by Peter Aykroyd. Uh, he's presented two of Dickens's short stories, Dr. Maribold uh, and, and Mr. Chops. Um, he's uh, played Dickens on Doctor Who. Uh, and most recently, he's been hugely successful in the West End with A Christmas Carol. Um, and I think the wonderful thing about the book is that this has made him extremely familiar with Dickens, and I think there's some psychological insights which come out of that immersion of which he speaks. But the thesis of the book is that it was Dickens as an actor uh, which made Dickens as a writer, rather than perhaps one might think the other way around. Uh, and I want to talk to him about that, but first of all, I think anybody reading the book would be surprised by the amount. I mean, we all know that you know, Dickens did a little amateur theatricals here and there, or that's what we think we know. But actually, it was much more extensive than that. I wonder if you'd talk about that a little. Yes, uh, well, uh, you know, Dickens was fascinated by the theatre from his earliest years as, uh, in uh, um, uh, Chatham, was when he first went to the theatre. Not only, very interestingly, he, he loved the theatre immediately. He adored being there in the audience, but he also uh, attended rehearsals of uh, amateur theatricals directed by his step-cousin. And he was, unusually for a child, as fascinated by the process of making theatre as he was by what was going on on stage. How did it all come about? He wanted to know. And uh, 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 he went home immediately and wrote a play, having seen it, called uh, Miznar, Sultan of India, which after um, a three-day run in his front room in Chatham has sadly since disappeared. But uh, uh, he was... Uh, uh, and he roped in the local kids and directed them in the play. So, most unusually, it isn't just that Dickens was in love with acting, which many kids might be, but he was in love with the whole thing, the, the gestalt of theatre. It fascinated him, absolutely. And uh, 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 when he was a 
a boy uh, in his teens, he wrote plays for his own family to do, and he directed those. And then he directed his friends in plays. Um, he took part in that most curious of uh, um, early, uh, uh, well, early uh, 19th century phenomena in the theatre, the minor theatres, where uh, if you paid them a certain amount of money, you could go and play a part in a production. So if you really wanted to give your Horatio, you'd go and say, look, here's five pounds, can I play Horatio? It's kind of theatrical karaoke, you know. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, he, did, he did that, and uh, uh, he was now working in a law office, uh, which he didn't like at all, um, and he decided to try his luck at actually becoming an actor. And he prepared himself. The, the striking thing about this is he applied for an audition, and he prepared himself, well, he'd been preparing himself, really, uh, ever since uh, he'd left school, because he claimed, I believe him, that he went to the theatre every single day of his life for three years. And he followed all the great actors. He adored everything about the theatre. He loved variety, knockabout. He loved the tragedies. He loved the great actors who were still like dinosaurs, kind of roaming the theatres, sometimes with as many as 100 extras in tow. It was an extraordinary period in the theatre for everything except for writing. Uh, um, uh, the, the, the plays were not remarkable, but the, the whole theatrical event was extraordinary. And in amongst them all was the actor that Dickens loved most of all, who was a guy called Charles Matthews, who had a very unusual uh, uh, stock in trade. He'd invented a form called monopolylogues, which meant one man playing many, many different parts on the stage. And uh, uh, sometimes he did it by... Uh, running off and changing costume and coming back on again. But often it involved him being involved in quite lengthy scenes with six or seven characters, uh, 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 and this was the, the sort of polyphonic use of voices. Well, anybody who, who knows Dickens's novels will instantly recognise the, the origin of that particular virtuosity of mimicry. But Dickens wanted to be Charles Matthews. He learned all his monopolylogues, and he practised them, he rehearsed them, and Dickens, from a very early age, whenever he did anything, did it to the ultimate. There was uh, uh, nothing uh, um, uh, of the uh, dilettante about Dickens at all. And so he learned these monologues. He practiced, and very remarkably, it struck me in the letter that he wrote asking for the audition. Uh, he said, I have practiced uh, all the important things about acting, like, for example, uh, walking up and down and sitting down. And <laughs> He's absolutely right. Those are some of the hardest things to do on the stage. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, uh, he presented himself, he said, I, I, uh, I, I think I, I'm, I'm very quick, uh, I, I'm uh, very good at studying people, I, I know who they are, and I can offer a particular understanding of human beings uh, in my work. And uh, I mean, I paraphrase him, but that, that was a remarkable thing for a young 18-year-old to write to a, an important manager. It was Charles Keane was the manager to whom he was applying. Anyway, as it happens, uh, Dickens got ill on the day of the audition. He was going to sing as well. His sister was going to play the piano for him. He got ill that day, and they said, OK, well, come back next season. And only a matter of days afterwards, he got an offer from his uh, 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 uncle, William Barrow, who had founded a, a paper called the Mirror of Parliament, which was a rival to Hansard. And uh, Dickens 
went to work as a parliamentary reporter and then was so brilliantly successful at that that uh, uh, he, he became a bit of a legend as a shorthand reporter, went to work for a newspaper. The newspaper asked him to write pieces for them. Those pieces became sketches by Boz and that led to the Pickwick Papers and then... The rest is history. The rest is history. So that's how we lost the greatest Victorian actor we never had. Yeah. How did we lose the greatest Victorian playwright we never had? I mean, why didn't Dickens become a great playwright? Well, it's, uh, isn't it uh, fascinating? He, he wrote a number of plays. He wrote about half a dozen plays of such tedium <laughs> that you can barely believe they could have been by Charles Dickens because whatever Dickens wrote... If, 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 if he wrote a note to a tradesman or if he jotted down a, a few random thoughts, uh, he, the, everything has his mark on it. It's always some original touch. The letters from the earliest letters we have from Charles Dickens are so filled with his particular voice, his particular imagination and fantasies, and the plays are Absolutely not at all. You would never, ever know. Not even one of those computers in uh, a university could, could work out that they were written by Charles Dickens. And the reason for that, I concluded, because it is mysterious since he was so in love with the theatre, is that he was so in love with the theatre of his own time, so utterly stage-struck, that he just reproduced it. So basically, they're, they're facsimiles of the plays of the time. You, you speak very interestingly about Victorian acting and the distinction between gest the gestural acting of the time, and, and you actually say that the, the, what we, we now, you know, describing the art of acting, interpreting the role, yeah. that would have been an alien and indeed quite, quite you know, un uh, badly regarded concept. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems to me to link into what you yes. well, do uh, say about uh, I Dickens' mean, uh, Early 19th century acting, indeed, I, I would say that it was probably true right through to maybe even the beginning of the naturalistic movement, so the, the kind of late 19th century, early 20th century, acting was essentially the art of gesture. So what you went to see when you went to the theatre was, of course, a very potent personality. The actor had to be charismatic and fascinating. But what they strove for, the actors, were called points. That means to say the cruxes, the, the emotional and the dramatic cruxes of the action would be embodied in a gesture of some kind. And that's the way, you know, they would say, the way that uh, Frederick Lemaitre buttered his toast after he'd made up his mind to kill his cousin was the thing that you remembered. And people, especially this was true in the French theatre, but it was true for, in, in English theatre, would applaud those moments. Uh, they would gasp sometimes, and, and Dickens actually describes terribly well audience reactions to things, that there was a, something, you know, uh, uh, this is later, of course, but, but a typical example is Henry Irving in The Bells, famously when he was pulling on his boots and he heard the sound of the sleigh bells of the burgomaster that he'd killed. Whatever he did physically, the moment was the thing that everybody remembered. Uh, and, and they gasped at this. They, it, it, it was an intensification of gesture. And I think that the nearest thing we can understand to this now, Laurence Olivier was not uh, a million miles away from, from that. That was what he was trying to do as well. Uh, uh, but the best examples of it that I can think of are in the silent movies, where you see, because of the, the, the 
lacking the voice, lacking words, the actors force themselves into intense expressiveness. They go in sort of slow motion and they'll caress a chair or something like that in a most heightened way. It's almost on the edge of being dance. And that, I think, is what many, most Victorian actors were aiming for. Of course, they were also very concerned with the voice, uh, although perhaps not in the way that we think. We, we think that uh, because, especially uh, as the century wore on, theatres got bigger and bigger, we assume that actors' voices got louder and louder and louder. But uh, on the contrary, what happened was that they got slower and slower, and they elongated the vowels so that you could hear the same trick of clergymen, you know, in big churches, is to speak much, much more slowly. And you can, you can hear that on... I'm sorry, this is a digression, isn't it? It's not really... But, but it's very good. <laughs> Thank you. And you should carry on for, for at least another minute. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, this is when, when, when Dickens himself acted. Uh, Dickens was, uh, had, had two particular strong suits as an actor. One was comedy, and he was... Glorious. Everybody said he was the most gloriously funny, hilariously inventive, outrageous actor. The account of his performance of Justice Shallow is just, you could see this doddering figure uh, uh, shaking across the stage. People adored him and, and he loved to, to, to disguise himself. And uh, it was wonderful when people didn't know that it was him when he walked on the stage. And um, uh, uh, all of that delight in. In, in transformation and in, in that, that high comic stuff. The other thing, which is interesting and only came later in his acting, because I should quickly explain that um, he didn't do any acting for a while until after he went to America in 1842 on his first visit to America. At the end of that journey, he, he met uh, someone on the boat who was, a, who was a, a captain in the guards in Montreal, and the captain had said, oh, you must, at the end of your journey, come up to Montreal and do a play with uh, the soldiers and their wives. And he did that. He did three plays. And in doing that, he fell in love with the theatre all over again. And then he and his best friend, John Forster, determined that they would seriously start putting plays on. And uh, the first play they chose, astonishing to me that they chose this play, was Every Man in His Humour by Ben Johnson, which is not an easy play uh, at all, uh, which had been a flop a couple of seasons before when MacReady did it. Great hit of Garrick's, although Garrick had rewritten it completely. Then Dickens and Forster sort of rewrote it and trimmed it down even more. But it's an unusual play for them to have chosen. And once Dickens started directing it, his natural fanaticism took over. And although he was always very high-spirited and everybody loved working with him, but he, 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 he drove everybody to a very hard indeed. They rehearsed very often because of the difficulty of getting rehearsal rooms from midnight to four o'clock in the morning. Uh, the actors were mostly fellow writers uh, 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 or, or painters. Dickens... Uh, included many painters in his circle. And they, uh, uh, they all, he whipped them up to a high level of ensemble brilliance. Um, he worked intensively with the scene painters and the designers, giving them references, you know, exactly the way we would do now, going and finding uh, reproductions of paintings and showing them exactly what... They'd get books about the way Elizabethan cost costumes were cut and so on. And then uh, this play... Every Man in His Humour was done... Initially, they decided to do it for charity. 
Uh, and it was a sort of family and friends kind of event, except that Dickens being Dickens, he also invited Alfred Lord Tennyson, he wasn't Lord Tennyson, but Alfred Tennyson, the Duke of Devonshire, half of the cabinet, and all of the critics. <laughs> and so word very quickly got out uh, the, how good it was. Queen Victoria came to see it, and then uh, uh, Prince Albert asked to see it, and then they came to it again together. Every single one of Dickens's amateur productions was seen by Queen Victoria, uh, sometimes uh, uh, special private performances for her or whatever, although... Interestingly about Dickens, he never met her. He refused to meet her on, because every time she'd, he'd give a performance and then she'd summon him and he'd refuse to go on the grounds that he didn't want his sovereign to see him in Motley. Right. In <coughs> other words... W with a red nose. Exactly. Yeah. He wanted to be seen, on, yeah. meet her on his own terms as an equal. Finally, he did meet her in the last year of his life. Um, now, in a late performance in The Frozen Deep by yeah. Wilkie Collins, which is wonderfully reviewed, um, there's, a, there's a review, review of, of, of Dickens's um, uh, relationship with the character, which you then lead on, I think, to the most important passage in the book, where you say that there was a level of immersion described, uh, immersion in the character described in that passage, uh, which sounds like very modern acting, as distinct from the gestural acting that you've described, yeah. an acting which is about getting inside the character and losing yourself in the character. Yeah. And that seems to me uh, to be, to, to touch on the thing that you, you, the basic thesis of the book, which was that Dickens was a different kind of writer from most novelists, in that he wasn't just able to imagine people and represent them or observe them and represent them, but somehow live through them. And that gave it the particular and peculiar vibrancy. Have I got that right? Yes, no, exactly. Uh, uh, what, uh, what was... You use the word Stanislavski, which is a... a, a... Yes, but that's... Uh, I, um, uh, it, it, I have to qualify that, because uh, he, he was... Uh, what, what I'm particularly saying in the book is that... the play in question was written for him by his friend Wilkie Collins, who had already written a play for him called The Lighthouse, which was about a man... Uh, this was, I also need to say, at a time of increasing emotional darkness for Dickens. He knew he had to leave his wife. He was full of restlessness and turmoil. And he asked Wil Wilkie Collins particularly not to write him one of the comedies that he'd been famous for, but a play on a, a very dramatic theme. And uh, the, the character that Wilkie Collins wrote for him was a lighthouse keeper who had Im been involved in a murder some 20 years before and finally was able to say that he'd been involved in it and, and confess and so on. Uh, and Dickens' performance was hugely uh, uh, admired and astonished people. And then The Frozen Deep was a, a, an even uh, more uh, emotionally charged performance, which was uh, it's an Arctic melodrama it's described as. And uh, Dickens played a man who had uh, got engaged to a woman, gone away to Africa to make his fortune, to bring back to her so as they could get married. When he came back, he found that she'd married his best friend. And so he decided that decides there to kill that best friend when he next comes across him. And somehow they find themselves together in the Arctic. And uh, uh, by... Uh, a wonderful kind of conversion of his spirit, he decides not to kill the man and instead dies himself. And the last few moments of the play are uh, Richard Warder was the character, Richard Warder um, uh, uh, dying. Uh, now, it is absolute piffle, this play. 
I mean, it, it, it's shocking that a writer as good as Wilkie Collins could have written such rubbish. Um, but the point is, it's exactly what Dickens wanted and needed. He didn't, uh, he wasn't interested in this occasion on interpreting great language, that wasn't it. He wanted to delve deep into himself. It was a need he had at that moment. Because Dickens may be said to have felt himself only real when in front of his audience. That's either um, uh, his audience of readers or his audience in a theater. And somehow he needed to do that, to demonstrate the pain that he was feeling, to live through it. And so he dug deep and deep and deep into the character to the point where uh, melodrama is a very difficult form, I, I think. Uh, um, and it takes um, a truly great actor to make, uh, make it real. But if you do take melodrama on its own terms and you can fill it in that way, then it becomes sometimes some of the most affecting and overwhelming uh, uh, piece, forms of theatre of all or film, because many films essentially are melodramas. And, and uh, if I may take Charles Lawton as an example of an actor who, who you've written a biography. I've also written about Lawton. And, and, and that Lawton um, took these melodramas that he acted in terribly seriously and really terrified his audiences by the places that he went to emotionally. Those extravagantly written speeches, you know, uh, uh, in a melodrama threatening to burn the place down and rape everybody and so on. Um, if you play those for real, and you really, you don't think it's someone making a theatrical gesture or a shape, but you really believe that those words are meant, then it becomes very frightening. But perhaps because, because of the crudity of the writing. And that's what Dickens did with The Frozen Deep. And you think he did that with the characters he wrote in the novels? You, 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 you seem to be arguing that actually there's a level of immersion in those people which is different from well, the he, other novelists. He lived through time. them as an actor lives through a character, you know. So uh, he absolutely... Um, uh, uh, I mean, he used to leap up and, 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 and say the word... Intro I mean, yeah. I think most writers, you know, speak out loud when they're... When they're writing dialogues, certainly yeah. playwrights do, but few leap up and look in the mirror and yeah. see what they look like doing. Exactly. And that's, it's interesting because he knew that he, if he did, because he was living it through so fully as he was writing it, that it would tell him what the character looked like. And uh, uh, um, he, he... This is all to do with Dickens's relationship to his readers, or st stroke audience, that Dickens, unlike many... Uh, writers, unlike most writers, had a visceral need to feel that he was connected with his readers, that he was writing for them and about them and that they were responding to him. And you might say that the whole trajectory of his life as a writer was trying to get further and further into his readers' heads and hearts and minds. And he said when he was a very young writer that his objective was to create characters that would take their place with the household gods and that he would be there in the house, in the household with them. And that's fantastically different. I mean, at the yeah. same time he's writing, the Brontes are writing pretending to be men, and, and yeah. George Eliot is writing pretending to be a man, and, 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 and many, I mean, many 
mid-Victorian novelists are trying to make themselves as invisible as possible yeah. as people, whereas Dickens is, uh, I think, isn't there, you, you quote in Christmas Carol, there's a moment when he says that, that an object or a face is as near to Scrooge as I am to you, yep. that he's sort of placing himself actually almost in the book. Absolutely, and, and <clears throat> his, 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 many of the novels contain extraordinarily... Um, almost Pirandellian moments where the writer suddenly speaks to the, to the reader. Um, right, right at the beginning of um, uh, Christmas Carol is a very famous example where, where he says uh, uh, Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind you, I don't know of my own knowledge what there is particularly dead about a doornail. And, and it, he wants to be there. It's rather like... Um, almost like a, a director wanting to be in the frame of his own movie. You are never, in my view, in a Dickens knowledge, uh, uh, novel, uh, unaware of the presence and the voice of the author and the sense that he's performing it for you. And this virtuosity of voices is a very clear example. He wants, he wants your approval and admiration for this, these brilliant riffs that he's doing for you. This, um, <clears throat> I think one of the many great things about, about your book is, is the level of sort of psychological exploration that you do into Dickens. I think particularly uh, the consequences of his year in the notorious black yeah. blacking factory when he's making shoe polish uh, and feels completely betrayed by his, by his parents and, and, and betrayed by his, of, you know, deprived of the dream of himself that he wanted. And may I just say, no, that's absolutely right, but just say, because it, it was, a, I, I thought, very important, uh, I, I, I thought it was terribly clear that, um, Dickens, once he was in the blacking warehouse, uh, um, knew, he said, he knew that under no circumstances must he let anyone know how unhappy he was. So he put on a performance of being bright, happy, cheerful, and uh, tried to amuse people all the time. And that's acting as salvation, you know? The, the, you, the you, you, you save your life by putting on a mask. There's a, I think Dostoevsky, of all people, had a conversation with Dickens. And, uh, no, it's right? a hoax, that. Oh, it's a hoax? Yeah, yeah. Even Claire Tomlin agrees it's a uh -huh. hoax. Aha. Yes. Um, in, in which Dickens is reputed to have said, clearly, fallaciously, that um, the, the, the good characters were the person he wanted to be and the bad characters was the person he, person he feared he was. Yeah. You... I'm don't suspicious buy that. of that, yes. I mean, you're suspicious of it because the quotation is fallacious or because... Uh, I just don't think it doesn't quite uh, seem to me to be what, what Dickens was doing at all. I think um, there's a fabulous phrase, uh, an academic phrase, I suppose, but a fabulous phrase by Malcolm Andrews, who has written the best book about the reading, public readings that Dickens did. He said that what his, uh, his, his work in the public readings, but also generally, is about the facility of self, F-I-S-S-I-L-I-T-Y, that the, the, the self is infinitely dividable up, which is, of course, the experience of an actor. Actors discover that you can become many, many different people very credibly without totally departing from yourself. It's about a sort of ontological flexibility somehow, and that's what Dickens celebrates and rejoices in. And that's what he said. He said, assumption, he said, meaning assuming a character, has such delights for me, he said. And, and, and nothing pleased him more in the public readings to a degree of astonishing virtuosity, of leaping from one character to another, but always hitting the character straight down the line. 
and uh, not not uh, not as it were just putting on the voice, but becoming this character, becoming that character, becoming this character. And that's of course you know something that all actors, almost all actors, rejoice in. And that but he rejoiced in it to a quite uncommon degree. One of the things that's often said about Dickens, I think it's true, is that his women are less satisfactorily portrayed than his men, by and large. I mean, it's not quite that they're all, you know, heroines or shrews, but there's a yeah. sense of that. Uh, or well, there, there are many wonderful, wonderful female characters, but there's a but strand do, of characters but do, in Dickens do, do, which is Do you have a view as to why, why that is? I mean, Well, it, it's, yes, it's very deeply rooted in his psyche, and in my view, it does stem right back, it comes right back to the blacking warehouse, where, you see, what, what happened to Dickens in the blacking warehouse is that he, uh, everybody knows the story, I'm sure, but, but, but uh, uh, when, when the family moved from Chatham to London because of his father's impecuniosity, they uh, went to live in Camden Town in a sort of new development, which was very arid and lacking in any character or community. Dickens hated it, but Dickens' parents were completely, un suddenly uninterested in him because they were obsessed with their own problems, and Dickens was sort of let loose. He was adrift. He didn't have any... Ed his education had come to an end. He was uh, uh, 11, and he was just loose in London. And he felt this peculiar sense that they'd just given up on him and were obsessed by their own problems and so on. And he started to become... to grow up early, you know. Uh, uh, and then, to his utter dismay, they agreed to a suggestion by a, a, a family about his step-cousin, uh, that Dickens should go and work in this blacking warehouse, 10 hours a day, six days a week, this rat-infested uh, uh, shoe polish factory where he just sat every day with uh, 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 had a jar of shoe polish onto which he put two uh, caps of paper and put some string around them and stuck a label on. In other words absolutely factory-like mechanical activity, which he had to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times a day in this rat-infested, damp, scary place. And uh, his feeling of abandonment was absolute. Uh, his father was now in the debtor's jail. Indeed, his father and his mother and his family, everyone except for him, and the servant were all in the Marshalsea jail for debtors. Their little servant was with them. And he said they had a better time in there than they'd had for years before. Uh, he, meanwhile, was living in, in a rather uh, dingy uh, uh, room uh, run by a rather shrewish old woman in Camden Town, walking an hour a day into the blacking warehouse, having six shillings a week, just trying to, uh, as he said, as a child, trying to have the strength and will to only spend one shilling a day on his food, but never succeeding, and always ending up with no money and no food, uh, 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 and looking and peering into shop windows with food, longing and aching for it, and having this general feeling of just being neglected and abandoned. And then, finally, he came out of the blacking warehouse. His father had seen him working in the window of the the warehouse when it had transferred into Covent Garden, with an audience watching these boys, and Dickens among them, as if they were monkeys in a cage. And John Dickens had been humiliated by that, sent an angry letter picking a fight with the man, the chap who'd got Dickens the job in the first place. He was sent home. And then his mother said, what are you doing here at home? And he said, well, I've been sent home. And she said, get right back there. 
get back into the blacking warehouse. John Dickens <laughs> overwrote her and overruled her. But Dickens never, he said it himself, he never, he said forgot, but I think we can read forgave, her for her lack of imagination. I shall never forget, he said, that she was warm for me going back to the blacking factory. And obviously there's something in his relationship to the feminine which was skewed in by, that, by that. Uh, in my, in my <coughs> belief. Uh, and then uh, the, he started to form this image of, 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 the, the, of, of a, an angelic female presence so very different from his mother's, as it were, which had a, a, a actual re, a, a re presence in, in the shape of his sister-in-law, Mary Hogarth. Who died young and, and, and therefore who died took young, on a glow of... of and of could never age, and she reappears throughout the novels, and it's the least credible strand mm. in all of Dickens' right. We've uh, not talked about that extensively, and we haven't talked about uh, the failure of Dickens' marriage. We haven't talked about his trips to America, his popularity there, and then how he was seen to have betrayed that. Uh, we haven't talked very much about very many of the novels. Um, in which, uh, uh, however, there is a solution to these <laughs> lacunae, <laughs> which is, I have to say, that on the front, there is a Victorian gentleman with Charles Dickens' head on the top, and on the back, there is the same Victorian gentleman the, uh, the other side uh, with, with, with a recognisable face. It's probably not seeable, visible for most of you, but it will be eminently visible when you queue up in, 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 in refreshingly large numbers uh, in, 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 in the upper level of the front of House of the Cottesloe to buy it uh, but, and to be signed in, 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 in Simon's uh, engagingly and unexpectedly beautiful hand. Um, <laughs> Uh, not for him, the doctor's scrawl. Um, <laughs> thank you very much indeed for coming, and thank you very much, Simon Callow, for the insights you've given us this evening. Thank you. <laughs> uh,